being on a nuclear aircraft carrier where there's a nuclear power plant in it that can perpetually run the whole whole ship and the entire conflagration of ships for years without refueling. And you can throw these jets off the flight deck and catch them. And when you see those things in real life, you feel so tiny as a doctor because the engineering that takes place on board those ships are fascinating. And I got to do all the medical stuff on there, do surgery, put together the mass casualty plan. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain Dr. Peter Reed Wardox. Dr. Reed is board certified in general surgery and surgical critical care and is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Reed also earned a Master's of Public Health and a Diploma in the Medical Care of Catastrophes from the Society of Apothecaries in London. Captain Reed retired from the U.S. Navy after a 24-year distinguished career which included numerous deployments at sea and with the U.S. Marines. He is currently the Chief of Trauma and Vice Chair of Surgery at Westchester Medical Center. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of Dr. Ree's experience performing surgery on an aircraft carrier, as well as in austere locations around the globe. He talks about his role in designing small forward surgical units, setting up the Navy Trauma Training Center, and being a founding member of the U.S. Military Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee, known as TCCC. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain Dr. Peter Reed of Wardox. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity here. So, Dr. Reed, you graduated with a degree in health systems engineering from Georgia Tech and then decided to attend USIS. What led you to choose a path into Navy medicine? Well, I think that being uh, Asian. I'm Korean. My father was a, a general surgeon in Korea, and I had a traveling childhood. And at, at the current time period, I've had 30 mailing addresses. I'll say that only 15 was after I actually joined the Navy. So I did a lot of moving around. And uh, as a child of a Korean doctor in our society, in our culture, we're pretty heavily forced into uh, being a doctor or a lawyer. And uh, so I went to college to make sure that I was not a doctor or a lawyer. So that's why I picked engineering at Georgia Tech. And uh, that was very far away from my home. I was 17 when I attended college. And after a while, I had an interesting friend that I met that made me see the ways that being a doctor is actually not a horrible thing and makes a lot of sense. It's a very stable profession to go into. And that's when I went into a pre-med type of uh, approach. Our school did not have a pre-med program, but they did have a health sense engineering. So that's a lot more of a consultation type of approach to medicine. And that's why I went into that. Once I decided I was uh, going to go into uh, medicine, I think I, I, I informed my father, who probably did a very silent, happy dance, that I was actually interested in medicine. And that was when he introduced me and recommended to me this thing called USIS or the Uniform Services University that I had never heard of before. And my father, not being an American-born person or American graduate, how he knew about this kind of program, I don't know. But I looked into it and, and I actually got into several medical schools. Georgia Tech is in Atlanta, Georgia. So I applied to Emory Medical School, and I got a scholarship with the Army HBSB program. And I also got into Morehouse in Atlanta, and then I got into uh, Uniform Services University. So a lot of engineering into which program to go into and why. But the bottom line was basically money. If I went into that area, I was able to be self-sufficient and, and pay my own way through school. And I'd obviously would pay later with my service. And my father, when he was in Korea, after the Korean War, they were also uh, indoctrinated into the military service out of obligation. And he was actually a, a Navy physician in Korea. 
And since uh, America was involved in Korea and established the culture in the whole country after the Korean War, it's interesting that he had a picture of himself in a Navy uniform, and that Navy uniform was exactly the same Navy uniform that uh, I ended up eventually wearing. I chose the Navy medicine pathway because I didn't like the idea of the green uniform for the Army, <laughs> even though I had the HPSB to go to Emory. And it was as arbitrary as that. I just thought that the Navy uniform was a little better looking. And I, I do like the sea. I do like the water. So I thought I'll do the Navy instead of the Army thing. And I, I think when I look back in that time period, a lot of people, the young kids overanalyze things. And a lot of their decisions are, are really silly and arbitrary. And, that, and I think that's the bottom line about this message. So when you completed Yushu's, you decided to go into general surgery. What, what led you to choose surgery as a specialty? That was the other thing. I, going through Yushu's, going through any medical school, the vast majority of the doc, of the students, the doc, future doctors, overthink things. And, and I, like everybody else, was, was tired of being the gunner to get into medical school. The mantra was C equals MD. And Yushu's did not have a pass-fail system, they actually still had a grading system. But I think for the young kids that worked hard to get into medical school, we were looking for a little reprieve from all the hard work. So the last thing we had on our list was surgery. Uh, top of the list was the easier specialties, the easier residencies, the shorter residencies. And general surgery was act actually at the very, very bottom of the list because everybody knew that was the hardest thing to do. The one thing I do really appreciate at USIS was all of my third and fourth year rotations were nearly almost all of them were out of town. I got to go to San Antonio to do my internal medicine, Portsmouth, Charleston, South Carolina, all, all these other places to do the, the rotations. And eventually I was led into surgery because I think my hard work and ability to, to stand on my feet for a long period of time got me rewarded more. And general surgery was I felt like some of the other specialties were a little bit more intellectual and I didn't feel like I had that intellectual capacity. So eventually, as hard as I tried to, for example, to go into anesthesia, because my father, when he came to this country, even though he was a surgeon, he went into anesthesia so that he could start uh, making a living and an earning to support the family. I tried hard to like anesthesia, but I found myself poking over the the screen and staring at what the surgeons were doing. And I thought what the surgeons were doing at was absolutely fascinating. And as much as I hated the idea of doing a general surgery residency, I think eventually I was recruited into that uh, field by the residents. And then, and then I found that the most applicable and, and appropriate for me, uh, especially because I got to do uh, things with my hands. And then I think that that contributed and made an actual difference as far as your technical capability, your manual dexterity, in addition to your, your intellectual uh, capacity. And then uh, general surgery, obviously, I think has a, a fair amount of judgment involved rather than pure just technical capability. So those are some of the many, many variables that go into it. But like when I talk to medical students and, and others who are interested in surgery or anything else, what, what I try to tell them is that uh, many of your life-altering decisions, which are very important, are actually very arbitrary. And I was heavily recruited into urology, and I, I thought for sure I was going to be a urologist because the residents and the interns there were so nice to me and they were recruiting me so heavily. But one thing led to the other. And, and the one point that I would like to make is that if I had rotated at a different time of my third year at a different hospital with different residents and with different chairmen, your decisions will, will, be, will be impacted. So a lot of the decisions I think I did make were arbitrary in many ways. So it's interesting that when you finish your general surgery residency, you're assigned as a ship surgeon on the USS Carl Vinson. Did you feel prepared to what they were asking you to do? And what does a surgeon do on a ship like the Carl Vincent? Well, I think that what I learned during my residency more than anything else was how to fake things. I hate to say that, but a lot of things you didn't do, but you kind of figured it out. Was I actually prepared? Probably was. People are ship surgeons on these nuclear aircraft carriers year after year, and they do okay. So I would probably say, by definition, I was 
prepared. Did I feel prepared? Absolutely not. In the military, the one thing that we have to be prepared for, which is a di difficult time period, is that right after your training, you're supposed to be very prepared and you're also really focusing on your next milestone. And after residency, the next milestone is passing your boards. So the idea of going on a ship where I wasn't going to be <clears throat> around any other surgeons or physicians was uh, very horrifying. And I was very concerned that I was not going to be prepared to take my, my boards and pass it. But I'll tell you, overall, uh, looking back on it, yeah, I did pass my boards and I had the usual concerns that everybody else does. However, it was such a great time period. And it, it was because I thought I was so encompassed in the medical world. I thought medicine was end all, the most interesting thing in the world. And being on a nuclear aircraft carrier where there's a nuclear power plant in it that can perpetually run the whole whole ship and the entire conflagration of ships for years without refueling. And you can throw these jets off the flight deck and catch them. And when you see those things in real life, you feel so tiny as a doctor. Because the engineering that takes place on board those ships are fascinating. And I got to do all the medical stuff on there, do surgery, put together the mass casualty plan, de novo. But one of the things that you do is you get an opportunity to qualify as a surface warfare person. And that means you have to learn the ship from inside out, know every single particle of the ship, uh, know the chloride content in the waters that are there, the nuclear aircraft, how, it, how the nuclear propulsion works, how the double articulating rods in the propeller system works, know every weight of every single airplane, every bomb, every piece of gear. And it, it, was, it was so enlightening. And I, I felt like it was such a learning experience that I truly loved my time on the ship. And then you're on top of the deck and you're in your blues and we wait for low tide so you can fit underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and come into shore. All of those experiences I thought was just absolutely marvelous. I, I, I loved every minute of it. So following that assignment, you completed a fellowship in trauma and critical care at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. What drew you to specialize in trauma? It's very interesting. I mean, trauma there was a show back then that's called St. Elsewhere on TV, and they used to do crazy stuff on TV. And I used to tell my friends who weren't in medicine, they don't do any of that. That's just TV stuff. And they were opening chests in the ER and so on. And through my entire military experience, I saw absolutely no trauma. And the military is supposed to be taking care of people who get shot. And no trauma was available to experience. But when I started my residency, in a civilian place, my first week in the hospital, we were open chests in the ED. And I was like, holy camoly, I didn't know that this world existed. But again, like many arbitrary things, I had a mentor who I emulated, thought that he was the hottest shit. He could take care of everything. Such a smart guy. His technical capabilities may not have been the best, but his judgment and, and the intel intellect uh, was fascinating. And I think if my hospital at that time, my residency was a little bit more prominent in transplant surgery, I might have gone in that direction. If they had a, their cardiac program a little better and up to, up to speed, I would have done that. But the prominent part of that hospital was trauma. And that's probably what uh, led me into it. So by the time I had finished my residency, I already had a fellowship promised to me in my residency. But when I was on the ship, I was out in Bremerton, and it was only a, an hour ferry ride to Seattle. So it, I didn't have the time to look around at other fellowships, but I did have a chance to interview at that program. It's a very established and prestigious program. And I, I didn't think I had a chance of getting in, but obviously they select me for whatever reason. And part of that program that I was interested in was the, that during the one year, you were able to go back to studying a little bit and get a degree in Master's of Public Health. So I don't know if I knew what that really meant, but I thought that was what made this program different than anything else. And, and I think I was very fortunate in that, in that I chose that program because they had some really large, prominent leadership in trauma that came out of that program. 
So it's interesting that you mentioned the Masters of Public Health and looking through your CV, I saw you also have another interesting education degree. You have a diploma in the medical care of catastrophes from the Society of Apothecaries of London. So how does an MPH and a diploma of medical care catastrophes help you with your Navy surgical career? I think it might give you a little confidence in your CV because there's so many letters by your name. I, I think the Masters of Public Health was very informing to me because in a short period of time, I learned many things about academia that I didn't learn from the military medical programs. That included classes on statistics, epidemiology, and also grants. What grants meant, how to obtain grants, how to write grants. Coming out of the Uniform Services University, their research emphasis is uh, near zero. So learning that was very informative for me. And then I also knew why my mentors, all the attendings in the Seattle program had grants, had R01 grants and were innovative surgeons who were finding ways to help society through research. So I think that's what Masters of Public Health was able to teach me. Now, when I finished, of course, I was looking at where I was going to be assigned. And since I had done time in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, where the medical school was, uh, my only requirement was uh, send me anywhere in the world, but don't send me back to Bethesda. And uh, that's what they did. They sent me back to Bethesda, but they actually was in the role as a junior attending uh, and also part of the staff of the Uniformed Services University. That program was run by a famous vascular surgeon Kevin, you might know him, Norman Rich. So Norman Rich obviously was one of the most influential people in my life and my career. And I, I wouldn't say encouraged. I don't know if it's more of a, he forced me to, but let's just say that he encouraged me to look into the area of the Diploma in Medical Care Catastrophes, which was awarded by the Society of Apothecaries of London. And that program, of course, requires some work, requires a lot of uh, textbook type of learning. But I think what it really did was uh, it gave me a chance to be deep in thought for a prolonged period of time, thinking about what catastrophe means. What do you do when there's an earthquake and you're the physician? What do you do when there's a war? What do you do when there's a typhoon? The, the principles are the same, whether it's a building a latrine or considering about hygiene without water and so on. But I think this is exactly what I employed when I was deployed to Afghanistan and to other areas, you know, how to live for months without running water on a bottle of water that's uh, rationed to you, how to build a piss pot, how to burn feces, uh, yet establish a semi-clean operating room in a tent. Not sterile, but clean. And uh, those are the kind of things that I think the medical care of catastrophes was helpful in. It makes you think about those things. You have to write a dissertation. I wrote my dissertation in hemorrhage and shock, but uh, you also learn about mass casualties and triage and so on like that. I think it was very appropriate for a trauma surgeon in the military to go through. So two months following 9-11, you were the first combat surgeon in Afghanistan assigned with the Marines of the 15th MEU at Camp Rhino. Tell us about that experience. What was your biggest challenge and what were your most memorable cases? So while I was at USUS, I was at USUS for five years after my fellowship. And then I had gotten a grant. I had written grants and I was doing a lot of research, basic science research at Uniform Services University. However, the military does not recognize research or grants. And I was deployed out to a ship in the USS Boxer at that time period, which is what a MEW is, a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So those are... Marines, about 2,500 Marines in a package, basically, that live on a ship. And the three or four ships that are put together as a battle group contain these 2,500 Marines. It takes about 2,500 Navy personnel to float around with these uh, Marine expeditionary units. And they're the guys who are ready from the Marine Corps to be available anywhere in the world. And coming out of the West Coast, our region of uh, interest is the Persian Gulf. So I was assigned to the box. So we were in the Persian Gulf at that time period. And I did a one-year uh, deployment where we were out to sea for 270 days out of 365. 
And I actually came back to the United States on September 10th, the day before the 9-11 event. And I was allowed a special privileges to come back a little early so I could present a abstract at our national meeting in Seattle. But as 9-11 changed the world at that time period, and I figured when my wife woke me up to watch the TV as the Twin Towers fell, I remember going back to bed and she said, what are you doing? I can't believe you're doing that. And I said, well, that only means one thing. I'm going right back out to sea because I figured that our expeditionary unit, which came back, was going to be the most ready at that time period. To make a long story short, there was a couple of months delay with, with the politics and eventually the weapons of mass destruction came out to be a focus. And our invasion into Afghanistan started in November. What was fascinating to me was that I went into Afghanistan to run a Ford surgical unit, which I helped design while I was in uses for five years. Norm Rich helped me get into this program with the Marine Corps doctrine people. And we designed a 10-man unit, which was able to set up and ready to take his first casualty within one hour of hitting the ground. And I was able to uh, design this type of uh, facility and also choose every single piece of gear, every single drug, every single solution, every single sponge that went into it. And this is what we got to employ when we went to Camp Rhino. Camp Rhino was the first facility that we invaded. It was a opium processing uh, plant that we took over as a Marines. And we set up a surgical unit in that place. We didn't have a lot of casualties. We did take a lot of fire. But overall, the, the fight was uh, lopsided. We were able to take over with relative ease. But I tell you, getting there, I actually had to join the unit. So I had to travel on my own. I had enough military savvy at that point that I knew how to travel, even though I had four 75-pound duffel bags. And the, the things I had to leave behind were all my mop gear. The mop gear is the gear that you put on the rubber things so that uh, the weapons of mass destruction, which we thought was chemical warfare, was designed to protect you from that. But getting out there to Afghanistan and uh, staying with the Marines was just um, a memorable experience that uh, you'll never forget. Learning how to be in the field, being ready uh, with your small little team that's never worked that small before in the history. So that, that was a lot of good experiences from my perspective. So you got a chance to see your baby deployed in action. What did you learn? What lessons did you learn about going from the planning phase to, hey, we got to execute this in a real life scenario? It was, it was surreal. I mean, you know, I, I was out in Camp Pendleton putting these tents together for the first time, learning how as a physician to put these tents up in the middle of the night with the package that they had. And we actually developed this because it was called operational maneuvers from the sea. In the old days, we used to bring all of our ships to the shoreline, bombard the shore in order to deploy these landing aircrafts, which the, the front of these little boats fall down, people run onto the beach, and it's called taking the beachhead. And that's what we normally did with the MEW, Marine Expeditionary Units, is practice taking the beachhead, which was the biggest operation. But the reason why we had changed that was because of a new technology that came around that was slowly being actually utilized and being thought to be non-futuristic, but reality, which is called the Osprey, the VR-22. So we were no longer going to take the beachhead, but we were going to you know, travel hundreds of miles, three, 400 miles into the direct objective. And that's what the Gulf War taught us, that our battlefront wasn't changing one to five miles a day. And because the hospitals the field hospitals were able to set up. Field hospitals are a thousand man deep and moving a thousand doctors and nurses and, and medics five miles is an event that you, nobody wants to ever witness. But now we're going to have the front line moving a hundred miles a day, 200 miles a day. And that was called operational maneuvers from the sea. And that's the reason why we've made these forward resuscitative surgical suites that could fit into the Osprey. So all of our gear had to fit into the Osprey along with our personnel. Then they would hit the ground, be able to set it up so that we could try to save as many lives as we could because the field hospital was going to be uh, 100 miles back. And what are we going to do for the guys who need immediate care? 
I can tell you that that experience was very rewarding for me, uh, seeing it from the ground up. When you returned to the States, you helped set up the U.S. Navy Trauma Training Center in L.A. County. Tell us about your role there and some lessons learned from that experience. Yeah, so I came back from Afghanistan. That's a couple of years out. And when I came back, I think it was in April, and they had a job opening there for a surgical specialty leader. And But the madman called me into the office and said, Peter, about this training center that we've been talking about for a long time. And I was actually lobbying for this trauma training center to be in Seattle, where I was accustomed to it. But the others were really shooting for L.A. County because L.A. County was a war zone back then. And it was the right place to go. However, I didn't want to go because I didn't want to move to Los Angeles. Who in the right mind would want to live in Los Angeles? I was in Coronado Island in San Diego. But when the Admiral tells you that he needs you to go do that and you turn him down, your career's over. So I remember going home telling my wife, we're moving to Los Angeles. So we went up there, started a program. A lot of politics went involved, a lot of regulations that we had to overcome with between the city, the mayor's office, and the county and so on. But we set up a little system where we were able to get housing. We put up four trailers and we started bringing 30 doctors and nurses and corpsmen up there for a month at a time, feed them. Uh, make sure they were safe, and then put them into the hospital and get them certified, get them licensed so that they could see what a gunshot would look like and take them to the operating room and actually do the surgery. The Navy surgeon doing the surgery with the Navy nurses and the Navy corpsmen. So they've got to uh, try that as a team for the first time because those guys that we got had never seen a gunshot wound in their entire life. And they got to try that uh, on the the, uh, guys in Los Angeles. And I thought that that was immensely important because I didn't want them practicing for the first time out in the field with people that they never met. So I'm happy to say that that program is still ongoing. It's been, I guess, 2002, so 20 years, two decades that's been ongoing. I'm actually going back this July to give a talk there at the symposium. And I see the Navy guys that I see there, they have no idea who I am. (laughs) They've got so many people that rotate through there now. The Army has a program in Miami. The Air Force has one in the Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. It's a very important program if you think saving lives is important. In 2005, you deployed again as a combat surgeon, but this time to Iraq in support of OIF. And you provided support for the special operations community in Ramadi. Tell us a little about your experiences during that deployment in Iraq. I was a Navy captain, been in the Navy for 22 years, was forced, I would say is a good word, to live in Los Angeles and do hardcore uh, knife and gun club trauma at Los Angeles. And there was a war going on and I needed to get out there. And I didn't want to be just a teacher or the coach doing all of that. So... At that point, I was a Navy captain and and senior enough that I was able to pull some strings and get myself out into Iraq. I would say that it was interesting because I got to go to all four Navy facilities, which is the guys taking care of the Marines. My brother is a U.S. Marine officer. He's an infantry colonel. He was there. I think that he also was a heavy influence as to why I also went into trauma surgery. He was the guy that was in the front lines as an infantry officer. And I felt like as a physician in the military with a long military career ahead of me due to uses endowments and obligations that I thought that that was what I should do. So I went there. I get to go to all of the facilities, Al-Assad, TQ, Takatum, Fallujah, But eventually, they set up a a special place in Ramadi, the city of Ramadi, support Blue Diamond, Camp Blue Diamond, which is so fascinating because that's where Tigris and Euphrates meet. And if you go back to the biblical times, that's where Adam and Eve was uh, started. So we're talking about center of the universe. And here I am with a uh, small five-man team supporting the special operations in in Ramadi. But we also had, uh, we were in the camp of Ramadi, which was a uh, 600-man base, which was predominantly Marine Corps with Army in there. 
So it was a combination of the Army and the Marines. And for a trauma surgeon who, at that time period, I felt that was about as experienced and ready as I could possibly be, that was my battle of the bulge. That was my time period that I got to do everything that I trained to do. And I loved every single second that I was there. From the ability to take care of the casualties to building my hooch, figuring out how to do the simple needs of a human being are making friendships that you'll never forget, working for the U.S. military, which protects me as a, as a surgeon that I had I never feared for my life when I was there, but it allowed me to take care of casualties who were American casualties who was there to serve. I felt that I was not serving in a wartime effort, but I was serving by helping those who got injured. And the most precious gift that the country can give is that I was allowed to and uh, encouraged to be able to take care of the Ramadi citizens that got hurt, but also uh, our enemy, the people that we were fighting. Uh, I got to take care of Soldier A, and uh, I got to take care of the, the enemy who shot Soldier A, and take care of the innocent casualties that was there. When our country was in wartime, and we were all trying to support our military the best we can, I thought, my being out in Ramadi and doing it in that fashion was about as rewarding as I could possibly get. I, I felt that it was a privilege. Were there any cases that, that stood out to you that you remember? I remember every single case that I did there. In addition to remembering every single case that I did, I have photographs and records of every single case I have done out there. I got a chance to operate on every single part of the body. I got to do uh, trauma urology. I got to do vascular surgery, orthopedic surgery, uh, neurosurgery as a two-man shop in the, in the far, forefront front of the war uh, when the heavy fighting was going on, taking care of uh, six-year-olds with uh, fragments in their neck, taking care of brave army lieutenants coming in blind from IEDs, taking care of people with legs blown off, two uh, stories that I usually like to tell. One of it was uh, in Pearl Harbor Day, which I never knew what that day was, but now I know it very well in December. And that's when 18 Marines came in as my first mass casualty. Of my first six Marines that came in, we were able to save one out of the 12 legs. People came in with the, the legs completely blown off with tourniquets on at the groin. And going through that experience with the 18, 18 people that eventually went through was, was I thought, one of the privileges I ever had. I mean, I feel like those people were injured whether I was there or not, but I got to participate and try to help them the best I can. And I remember that after the mass casualty, the majority of the medical company was army, medics, reservists from Pennsylvania, and they did not want to be there. They thought I was a freak because I wanted to be there. I fought to get there and I got there. They all wanted to go home. And I brought them back up at three in the morning, put them in a formation and, and explained to them that what they experienced, well, they'll never experience again. And what they got to do was an absolute privilege. To take care of our people who are serving out there is an absolute privilege. The second event was towards the end of my time there. I, I also, you know, it's, it's in the, in the undescribable in many ways as somebody has gone through and got a, a diploma in the medical care catastrophe and talking about triage and mass casualties my whole life. I got to do a mass casualty where there were 200 uh, people injured w within 50 meters of our fence. They were having a recruitment for Iraqi police, which is our you know, future Iraqi army. They knew they were, were going to be terrorists. They had dogs there to sniff them out. And of course, a guy with a vest on came. They caught the guy. The dogs caught the guy and he detonated himself and caused 200 casualties. So they came through within minutes. I, as a trauma surgeon, got to triage living people as expectants in the first 20 minutes of them coming in. I think that's an experience that will hopefully never be replicated again. But I remember every single patient that I took care of at that time. Even the guys who got their just fingers amputated from accidents to guys who got their brachial artery shot off from the guy behind him because of an accidental discharge. Yeah, it's, a, it's an experience that's really hard to describe and it's the most uh, rewarding experience I've ever had in my lifetime. So 
You are also a founding member of the U.S. Military Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee. Tell us about the role in this organization and the importance of it. I don't know who used to write those manuals before. We got a group of guys that formed this thing called the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee. The, the leader of this was a, a physician who worked for the SEALs, Frank Butler, and I would call him the father of this committee. He was a, a special operations a SEALs a physician, and he was an ophthalmologist. We didn't like him was because he wasn't a general surgeon, he was an ophthalmologist. But the things that he was recommending were so far forward and crazy, but he turned out to be right almost all the time. And we got a committee together to actually look at all the things that needs to be addressed from a medical point of view. And now this committee that we concocted in a trailer in Florida is uh, world-recognized. All of the militaries follow every single word and doctrine that we write. And it actually, the beauty of it was because we separated the injuries into three categories. Whereas before, especially with the special operations and the amount of money that they had and resources, they were coming up with strange scenarios, which wasn't applicable to the regular military. So when we broke it down into care under fire, tactical care, and then evacuation care, made all those permutations of what to do if you're in a mountaintop with three hours evacuation time and all these kinds of stuff, go into simple categories that we were able to make uh, policies on what to do and what to give. And being in this committee, I had done all my research in fluid resuscitation and found out that the crystalloid solutions that we were using was what's causing all of our problems. So that's when we discovered that there was nothing better than blood to replace blood and that there was a difference between banked blood and refrigerated fresh uh, refrigerated whole blood versus fresh whole blood because all of my experiments that I did in hemorrhagic shock was using fresh whole blood so we eventually came up with uh, a multitude of recommendations which the whole world follows including uh, damage control resuscitation which tries to mimic the uh, blood that we lost and we finally for the first time recognized that everything artificial that we pump into our veins is going to have consequences. We would have never thought about putting in saline into our cars, yeah, but uh, we thought it was similar to gasoline. And uh, those types of solutions in no way mimics what we have in our blood system. The blood system is the most complex system you can ever have. It has more proteins and hormones than we can count. And to think that it can be replaced with just either albumin or crystalloids is silly. So we, we were able to make these type of recommendations, including use of tourniquets, hemostatic dressings, use of oral fluids when we can, using your gut when we can. And I, I think that this committee actually meaning something has been very important, and I'm proud to be one of the founding members. So one thing I found interesting in your bio is that you've had the opportunity to interact with several U.S. presidents in kind of different ways. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, what a fascinating world. That has nothing to do with medicine, but I tell you, boy, oh boy, if you could travel with the president, it really will open your eyes. And as a UCES graduate, my first experience was when Connie Moriano was a charter martyr, as we call it, the first graduate of Uniform Services University. And she happened to be President Clinton's physician. And uh, on her staff was a Navy ER physician, Commander Darling. And uh, it turned out when Bill Clinton was going into China, China would not allow the military airplanes which follow the president in, in case he gets shot. I mean, all of the Secret Service is there for one reason, which is to make sure he doesn't get shot, that he doesn't get assassinated. But if he does, they usually carry an Air Force plane with them behind and uh, try to operate him on there. But the China said no. And so when we did our uh, recon into China medical system, their conclusion, the medical staff's conclusion was there's no way we're going to let President Clinton be operated on by a Chinese surgeon in one of the Chinese hospitals. So their compromise was to take their own trauma surgeon. And that's how I got selected at that time period. And that was an eye opener to see how important uh, a president is in the world. I thought doctors are the most important and surgeons are the most important, all this stuff. But when I saw every word that he, President Clinton, said and the impact that it had 
over the whole country and the world was just absolutely fabulous and, and, and a privilege. When he's in China and says, you need to let your press report the truth, those kind of things has really much more of a human impact than what I'll ever contribute in the world. So those kinds of things, along with President Obama inviting me to his uh, White House for not only a visit and to, and to sit in, the, in Michelle Obama's box during his presidential address to the, to the Congress. He also invited me to the uh, White House for a state dinner when the Korean president came into town. So I got to go to the ball of all balls and sit at his table in front of the president and also the president of Korea with, with my engraved invitation in the front. That was all just a privilege again that I, I can't repeat, but it was, it was a tremendous amounts of fun. So a big part of your career was publishing as you have over 390 manuscripts and over 20 book chapters. You were able to publish over a hundred of these while on active duty. How were you able to be that productive as a researcher, especially while on active duty? I, I always publish and ask for permission afterwards. If you ask for permission during, you'll know that it will bog you down for two years. There was, I think, only one paper <laughs> where I asked for permission. We went to, on my trip out to the Persian Gulf, we came back and we did a humanitarian mission in, in, in East Timor. So we wrote that up and that took two and a half years because we went through the normal change. When I was at USUS, I started my publications there in the lab with Norman Rich. And I just didn't know I was supposed to ask. So I think that was the main reason why. But the bureaucracy really does have to change. I mean, you're in San Antonio, you guys are publishing all the time, what it's like to go through the bureaucracy. And when I finally got caught, I got into a lot of trouble. But when I, was, when I went to L.A., I think I did another 100 publications with Dimitriades when I was in L.A. And obviously... By the time I finished, I think I was up to about 200 publications. And when the Navy found out, I didn't ask for permission for the 199 of those <laughs> publications. Uh, but I think there have been others that did that. I, I, I guess I didn't know any better. I just went forward and did the work. It was excruciating is uh, the only way that I can say. It takes a lot of hours, but it was probably the most rewarding thing uh, that I did do. What would you say is the most impactful military medicine research project that you have personally been involved in? I, I think that I was very fortunate in that a lot of my research meant something. I think eventually somebody will read in detail everything that I've written about suspended animation. I read in detail every word about that entire topic and spent many decades of my life researching that area about suspended animation. I don't have the time, the energy, and the money to do that anymore. Um, but in the future, when that becomes a reality, somebody will come back and read my work on that. However, I think that we did a lot of things in thoracic surgery that made a, a big change in clinical practice today, including the fact that uh, we've shown that large bore chest tubes aren't necessary and all these kind of things. Autotransfusions. I did a lot of research on hemostatic dressings when that first came out. And I think that we were the first to go into war with hemostatic dressings and uh, quick clot and things like that. So that, that was all satisfying. And eventually the tourniquets also came into use. So I think that's also nice. But however, overall, my very first project at USUS was when I experimented in large swine, what lactated ringers was doing to immunology. And uh, that's when I discovered that uh, the crystalloid solutions were the cause of all of our problems and that whole blood can only be replaced by whole blood. I, I would say that that's been my most satisfying discovery. So one of the other things that's interesting is that, you know, not only you're a trauma surgeon, you're a researcher, you're also an author and uh, you've written six books, including Trauma Red, Making of a Surgeon in War in America's Cities. And in that book, you talk about a story from you were retired at this time, but caring for Congresswoman Gabby Giffords when she was shot during a constituent meeting near Tucson in 2011, and you were a professor of surgery at University of Arizona. How did your experiences deployed and in, in, in the military running trauma systems and trauma training, how did that prepare you for that particular mass cal event? Practicing all the time and Tucson, when I got there out of the military in 2007, did not have a trauma center. So my job was to build a trauma center, get that into effect, 
And by the time Gabby was shot, uh, I had gone from two surgeons to eight surgeons. We were level one verified at that time period. And we had actually started research on people who get shot in the brain, not shot in the head, but shot in the brain. And we were able to show that by making a very concerted effort in salvaging people who were shot in the brain, that you could increase the survival rate from the customary 10% to 50%. And also, while decreasing your pool of potential organ donors, we increased our organs donated overall. So I think that it was fortuitous when that happened. But I remember when I came back from Afghanistan and one of my first nights back on call in LA County, they had eight gunshot wounds coming in at one once. And I, I don't think my heart rate went up because after you've seen IEDs and you know, high-velocity rounds all the time, when you see these little pea shooter handguns and nine mils, it just didn't thrill me that much. And uh, in Tucson, when that happened, I think that I wasn't uh, afraid of that. And I knew exactly what was going to go down. And when I came back into the hospital, because I was post-call that day, we were able to take care of things very quickly and expeditiously. And the trauma program that I was able to set up, it took care of itself. I, I think what was different about that was, one, this was the first mass casualty that we had in, involving a politician. So it got a tremendous amount of press. I was able to convince the hospital to let me be the spokesperson for this and to be as brutally honest every day. And I think that that's what caught on as to why that particular event got such high media coverage. And that's what led to Mr. Obama coming into Tucson as well. But I, I, I think that my mass casualty experience in the past and what we had practiced doing and prepared ourselves is where we were able to get a good result from everything. Uh, Gabby Giffords is probably one of my only patients I've remained friends with. Uh, her husband, Mark Kelly, was a, a Navy captain. So me being a freshly retired Navy captain, he and I got along very quickly. There's no doubt in my mind that our mass casualty efforts experience and then our attitude towards operating on people with gunshots to the brain helped the Gabby. Right now, I would say in the average trauma centers, the number of people that have operative intervention is still less than uh, 5%. You continue to have some connective tissue with military medicine and surgery training, and you served as an independent contractor teaching field combat surgery to Air Force surgeons at Camp Bolas in San Antonio. What do you think are the biggest needs in ensuring readiness for combat surgery experience? And how do we maintain that competency when the days in 2005, 2007, when those high op tempo, lots of casualties, those days are getting farther in the rearview mirror and we're not seeing those types of injuries anymore. Yeah, I mean, there the number of uh, military medical centers that do trauma is, is too few. We all know that, especially you guys in San Antonio, who are one of the very small places that do that. There's just way too much politics involved. And during peacetime, which I can't believe how long it's already been in peacetime, but this gets continually pushed to the back burner and uh, not in the visual fields of those who need to do it. We need to have leadership who are surgeons and trauma-related people who gives a darn about this. And we all know that this has been well thought out uh, in our trauma community with the military committees and so on. We have already worked this way out. We know what the answer is. We just need to implement it. I do think that the contracting of everyday care in the basis to the civilian world is uh, probably the way to go, either with something better than TRICARE, because I'm a TRICARE carrier now. And I can tell you that I cannot get a single physician to see me or accept TRICARE. And so that needs to be changed, one. But the everyday care of the family and, and so on can be contracted out, and we can do that. The, the doctors who are in the military need to be working full-time in, in active trauma centers so that they can, be, they can be ready. The military medical field does not put much money into doing this. They're just too worried about taking care of dependents and so on. But I'll tell you the special operations, if you look at the way they train, and the way they prepare is different than most of the other countries, and there's a reason why ours is better. If you took everybody in the entire military, who can shoot the best? I'll tell you, it's the special operations community. And what do they do? 
they still take once a week, every couple of weeks to go out there and shoot 40,000 rounds. They pay for it and they do it even though they know how to do it. And they practice until they get very, very good. So if they can get so good at killing, I think we need to get very good at saving. We need to put the money behind it. We need to get doctors and nurses and corpsmen and everybody else who knows what's going on. And my going out to San, you know, Camp Bullis in San Antonio was great because I, I like doing those kind of things. But I could see the fear in their eyes when a newly graduated general surgeon who is just doing breast biopsies and hernias are being told that they're going to deploy with the Air Force into these small man, five man units in the tents. And we're operating at nighttime with headlights on. And they're trying to put in catheters into the aorta, doing reboa, doing heart operations, kidney operations, bladder operations that they've never done before. They will probably do pretty well. But I think our soldiers who risk their lives deserve better. So when the history books are written, or if someone unearthed this podcast 100 years from now, what would you want your legacy to be in military medicine? And if you could tell the future what you want, what would you say to them? I was very lucky in, the, in my research. I was extremely fortunate in my experiences. But being in military medicine, there is no greater honor and it's an absolute privilege. We've been speaking with retired Navy Captain Dr. Peter Ree on Wardock's podcast. Peter, thanks again for sharing your experiences and your insights, and thank you for your service to the country. It's my privilege. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardock's, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.